tonight on Perch Exploitation. So, uh, where's my beer and when do I get paid? No, Jackie, that's not the way to throw a punch in zero gravity. See, this is the recommended technique. Sorry I'm late. I had to uh, give you 30 seconds notice. I compliment you, my dear. You have a strong, distinctive, and not altogether unpleasant body odor. Government's been privatized. High time. We just hope that our cooperative attitudes and our sunny disposition see us clear. Ah, what the hell? We'll probably kill you anyway. What would make you more comfortable, my dear? I have seven different forms of sedation. Alcohol. The usual pharmacology. The last time I saw him, he was being sucked ass first into the outer darkness. It's a mistake to give up caring. I emit a low-amp electrical wiring pulse designed to drive women wild with pleasure. Close your eyes and think of Brooklyn. Leave her alone, you half-electric asshole. He didn't mean that. He respects the brave way you confront your disability. I'm sorry you couldn't find it in your heart to give me a chance. You could have shared my position here. Now, all you'll share is my crew. 312 of them in random order. Yeah, for a son of a bitch, gimp rapist murderer. He died okay. Everybody and welcome to the fourth episode of Project Exploitation. That's right. You know, there's always a sophomore slump, and then there's kind of that like third episode that's kind of make it or break it. But by the fourth episode, I feel like we're just keep on trucking. So here we are here on Project Exploitation. And when I say we, of course, I am talking about myself, Nick Cheney, and my co-host Dan Jeremy Brooks. How are you? Space trucking across the universe. Always going forward because we can't find reverse. Talk to you about so? No. Okay. No. <clears throat> Never mind. That's awful. We'll just move on. I thought you were going to do a, um, oh God, a gold member, you know, space oh, truckers. truckers. Actually, it is a lot simpler. I always you know. do uh, a joke and it's so funny and I'm going to do it now. Please Where do. I pretend with no hint of, uh, you know, irony, that the Moonraker theme song is also Moonraker. <laughs> Which is actually so kind of works on two levels, because technically it's the same melody for Moon River, so. I know, I think about that too. <laughs> I was kind of like, Goldfinger, 
I mean, Moon River, I guess, is more of a major key, but still, the melody is like kind of the same at that beginning. Yeah, so. at least for that uh, initial three syllables. For the uh, well, the, the titular line, you know. So. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, but you know what? We're uh, not here to talk about James Bond. True. No, we're here to talk about a movie called Space Truckers. Yes. Oh boy, this is exciting. This is a movie that Dan chose, so I place all the blame on Dan. <laughs> but in reality, there's really nothing to blame you for, because it's actually pretty great, and we'll get into, obviously, why it's great uh, a little bit later. But uh, for those who don't know, Space Truckers is a movie directed by Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator, yes. and a lot of other movies, like uh, From Beyond, uh, Castle Freak, and a bunch of other stuff. Dan, do you know any other titles off the top of your head? Pop quiz? Oh, geez. I'm just um, trying to think now. Gotcha. Uh, several, several H.P. Lovecraft. I think he did The Unnameable, maybe? Uh but uh, uh, Barbara Crampton was in several of them. And in fact, she does make an appearance at the end of this one, which I had forgotten about. Yeah, she plays the mother, right? Right. And yeah. it's funny because she's the mom in uh, You're Next, which I think was the last thing I saw her in. Oh that's, oh, that's okay. That's Barbara Crampton. I was like, why do I know Barbara Crampton? Because I'm a millennial. Well, I don't know, though. I think you've probably seen some stuff she's been in. It's She's kind of one of those like 80s horror queens in a way. Oh, you yeah, know what I mean? for sure. But when you said you're next, I was like, oh, that's the one I can most visualize uh, oh, sure. in my head. Because I actually quite enjoy that movie. I do, too. Oh, she was in Body Double, too? Was she? I had, I forgot that. Huh. I just <laughs> saw that a couple years ago. An episode of the Barbara Crampton Hour. Uh, yeah, she was in Body Double. She was in Chopping Mall, which I have seen. Yes, I was thinking about how we should make that an episode, too. Because the gal from Evils of the Night was in that as well. And it was like her actually, last there were movie. more than one people from Evils of a Night in Shopping Mall. Oh. Um, I actually said that on the podcast. I don't know if you were present or if you listened to that episode, Dan. I, I don't really listen to anything anyone else says. <laughs> That's actually the ever, opposite of so. true. You probably listen to this podcast more than anybody because you edit it. <laughs> actually, that's true. And I mean, for sure. I add. <laughs> well, thank you. I try my best. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I do, I, I do probably listen to it more times <laughs> in total. So, yes. So, Space Truckers, directed by Stuart Gordon, great director. And we'll get into that a little bit. But just a little background on Space Truckers for anyone who hasn't seen it or who has seen it and wants to know more. The immortal words of the Starship Troopers campaign. <laughs> uh, Would you like to hear more? It came out contentiously i guess in 1996 maybe 1997 because i say that because the internet will not make up his mind as to when it came out according to imdb it came out in spain Ooh. of october 1996 at the sit film festival don't know that one hmm. so but apparently it premiered there so then it actually had its real from like I think worldwide premiered in Spain, ironically, then in January of 97 before premiering uh, in USA. What's so weird about the IMDb breakdown of all the release dates is that the USA is the only one that can't attribute an actual date. It just says April. But everybody, <laughs> all the other countries, including Spain, has its own, like, oh, January 14th or, you know, whatever. So I don't know. Maybe this was a. Uh, straight to video yeah. production. Well, maybe not production, but <laughs> uh, just ended up that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it was like it was filmed in Ireland. I want to say, which is something I didn't know yes. until the most recent time I saw it. It is a U.S., Ireland, and uh, Canada production. Oh, that's a gr hands across the water right there. That's I was going to say it's a triptych. No, British, Irish comic 
So it actually doesn't even have any uh, North American ties. Never mind. So British Ooh, Irish. Other than the actors, oh, no, no, suppose, American. So. Sorry. Why is America in Wikipedia not linked, but British and Irish is? I find that incredibly offensive to the greatest country on this earth. Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, everybody at Wikipedia should stand up right now, salute the damn flag, and then give me 20. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to pause this episode so I can update this Wikipedia page. All right, I have deal. to see if they removed that ban uh, after I edited the Rudy Giuliani page earlier this uh, <laughs> afternoon. Um, oh, anyway, that's a story whatever for another you, time. Whatever you said, he Rudy deserves it. You know. At well, this okay, point. wait a minute. Are we going to do breaking news with Stan Jeremy Brooks? Have you heard the Rudy Giuliani news today? I haven't. Uh, I, oh. I all I know is that he's been palling around with that Ukrainian guy who's essentially a Putin agent. <laughs> no, this has nothing to do with that. And you know what? Oh. It is entertainment adjacent. So we are going to take a moment to live break the news to Dan Jeremy Brooks okay. um, of what's been going on in the world of Rudy Giuliani because it I'm has on the edge of my seat. Taken the internet by a storm. Okay, in three days, the sequel to Borat yes. uh, is coming out. You know, to Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And two months ago, Rudy did tweet like, oh, Sasha Baron Cohen tried to get me for an interview, but I figured it out and he didn't get me, you know, whatever. Well, it turns out um, for the first time in Rudy Giuliani's life, he told a lie <gasps> and he uh, maybe did get got because <laughs> it is being reported that the footage in the movie that is to come may implicate him in a pedophilia sex crime no here's the context apparently in the movie and there are pictures already leaking let alone what we'll see in the actual clip most critics who have seen the screener are saying that no matter how many things you read about it because people are describing it whatever it is way worse in motion like you know oh like the final product is so much worse than you can actually describe so uh in the sequel uh, sasha baron cohen hired uh, an actress i forgot her name because she's new to me at least mm -hmm. uh to play his quote-unquote 15 year old daughter oh my now Lord. she's 24 in real life of course sure. uh but she, so they had her approach Rudy Giuliani uh, to go over ways that she can help uh, the Trump campaign oh, because she God. must have, you know, whatever. With little to no encouragement, Rudy not only agrees, but also goes through with meeting her in a hotel room, which of course is rigged by cameras because this is her hotel room, not even something that he procured. Sure. Um, meeting a hotel room alone up front stating she's 15, giving her scotch, and then lays down on the bed and starts to put his hand down his pants. Oh. And there's already photographs of that. Oh, Christ. Let alone, you know, watching the clip or whatever. So, of course, the internet took this and ran with it because, as they should, like anything to just fucking mm -hmm. dance on the early grave mm -hmm. of Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. But... Um, yeah, it's already being spun by a lot of conservatives. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted today. What did he tweet? He tweeted, it was actually just like a half hour ago or something. And he tweeted, everybody knows that that was a shirt tuck. <laughs> <laughs> that is what he's going with. That's, Not the, that's, you know, wow. Forget the scotch, forget the possible, you know, election interference, you know, with Intel from another right, country right. or whatever. Um, <laughs> It's it's no. He was laying on the bed, t 
tucking in his shirt because that's what you do when you lay down. You tuck your shirt in. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, because I want to get less comfortable when I'm on a bed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Other notable conservatives who I'm forgetting because they all blend together for me are saying, well, technically speaking, she's 24, so there's nothing wrong. It's like, no, 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 no. Looks like somebody hasn't seen Curtis Hansen to catch a predator. Indeed. That's not how this works. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have cops go on the internet and say they're 15. Uh, You know, and those are cops where technically there may even be entrapment ambiguity. And I say that as someone who's all for that, if it technically catches, you know, pedophile. But like, this is a citizen telling another citizen I'm 15 years old. And then that citizen laying down with no encouragement and already putting his hands down his own pants. Oh, holy shit. You know, the irony about all this is um, Giuliani, like I said, has has spent the last few months uh, working closely with this. The Hunter Biden thing? Yeah. And he he said, oh, we found these three laptops that Hunter Biden took to a repair place. Quote, unquote, found. Found and never brought back. I mean, never came back from like, oh, yeah, like you do. You know, you always drop off three laptops. That are all broken at once, and then you never come back for them. And oh, wouldn't you know it? There's child pornography on it, which is classic KGB GRU stuff. They always try to get their uh, opponents to look like they've got child porn. It's just one of their classic things they always do. I mean, I feel like clearly, and I hate to get all whatever conspiracy, whatever, but clearly. There's an entire subsection of the population right now that skews white, male, rich, uh, whatnot, mm-hmm. who are so quick to point the finger at false accusations of pedophilia, whatever, that it must it clearly is only coming from a mirror of recognition of like, mm-hmm. like, like the joke in, uh, uh, oh, hello, uh, where uh, John Mulaney is like, and if I ever find that guy in the mirror who put the note in my pocket, I'll kick the shit out of her. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, how, it's like, why are you casting a light on the most baseless accusation that technically only have merit if the light changes direction? <laughs> right, right. No, that's very true. Well, it's it's such a classic exa- example of projecting. It's like, no, yeah. that's you, dude. That's you. You know, but anyway. So anyway, we normally obviously aren't going to get this quote-unquote political, but I think we can all agree that Rudy Giuliani is a horrible person and most likely and definitely a pedophile. Yep. Um, He's a bag of shit. And uh, we now have literal proof of it, but I could not resist uh, being the one that uh, told you that for Ugh. whatever ghoulish reason. <laughs> I know. I just I can't believe I hadn't heard about it. And I I mean I've been up since you know early this morning. Yeah, so I, was I don't know say, why you I didn't a message in the morning, which because at first I was like, well, sometimes you do sleep till like six o'clock or whatever. Which, sure, sure. The listeners may sound yeah. like a joke, but no, Dan does have a erratic sleeping schedule. Not erratic as in unorganized, but, but uh, uh, definitely unorthodox. So to the layman. Well, yes, but <laughs> layman because they're sleeping. The way you tuck your shirt in, you know, when you're sleeping. Uh, yes, which mm-hmm. we all do. Mm-hmm. Come on, we're we're all shirt tuckers yeah. in here. Don't front people. But like literally, the sentence w- that is a tuck and tuck all in caps with an exclamation point is going to be burned into my mind for a while now. That is a tuck. <laughs> it's just it's, it's like woman, uh, man, camera. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah, exactly. We'll never be able. To, you know. Yeah. Anyway. If oh. that's a tuck, I am never tucking in my shirt again. Yeah. If that's a tuck, then tucking is definitely against uh, the uh, rules in the Catholic <laughs> the <law>. Church. <laughs> the law in the Catholic Church. I'll <laughs> just say it that way. 
You know? uh, anyway, mm-hmm. we will move on to space truckers. Yes. So listeners, if you are still with us. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the U.S., uh, April 1997 in the U.S. That's correct. We don't know anything uh, I, further. I got to say, I almost just said space tuckers. So this is going to be a fun episode. Oh, <laughs> uh, space tucker Carlson's. Ugh. Oh, God. So, yes, the U.S. <laughs> release was in April 1997. And then, of course, it released for pretty much the rest of a year uh, in plenty of other countries. Uh, so let's get really quickly to the synopsis which i'm gonna curb from letterbox which takes this stuff from tmdb the movie database uh it says john canyon is one of the last independent space transport entrepreneurs rough times force him to carry suspicious cargo to earth without question being asked during the flight the cargo turns out to be multitude of unstoppable and deadly killer robots uh yeah that's that's uh that's pretty accurate pretty accurate mm-hmm. yeah so, of course, in the cast, we've got the one and the only Dennis Hopper as Mr. John Canyon. We've also got uh, Debbie Mazar as mm. Cindy, Stephen uh, Dorf as Mike Pucci, Barbara Crampton, of course, as Carol, Cindy's mother. And then we've got, rounding out, I would say, the kind of uh, side cast, but, uh, uh, well, not quite ancillary, but Charles Dance as Mabel. Uh, yeah. Macanudo, uh, George Went as Keller, the guy who shows up, I think, toward the very beginning to like first give him the job. I think, right? Yeah, he's just he's only basically in the first maybe twenty minutes, but yeah. he he established himself to be a real scub. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and a whole host of other people that I'm not going to name unless Dan you wants to highlight any one particular person and I haven't said. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, 1996, Dan. I'm going to pass this to you, and besides, sure. of course, your opening thoughts of what you think about this movie, I'm also curious about how, how did you first see this? Was it, you know, on video? Was it in the theater or whatever? Mm. And um, what else, uh, you know, why did you want us to watch this besides the fact that it's pretty great? Well, uh, yeah, this uh, watched it in, I want to say 98, because I don't remember seeing it on video until then. Uh, cause I, I really, I feel like it was on the new release wall at the time. This was like Hollywood video back when there were video stores. Ah. And, uh, my brother and I had already been going pretty heavily through the sci-fi section. We had started doing it alphabetically and there's a lot of stuff that's not great, but even the stuff we didn't, that wasn't very good. We still enjoyed immensely. So we, we referred to some of it as cheesy sci-fi, but then every once in a while there'd be a gem like this. And this was like a super gem. We were shocked at how good it was. We watched it several times. And in fact, uh, for a film class uh, my brother was in, the two of us actually wrote a paper about <laughs> space truckers, the themes uh, uh, in it. <laughs> and uh, like, I, I assume most of the other people were writing stuff about like, you know, well, it was a Pasolini class. So, I mean, they were probably writing about like- It was a Pasolini class? Yes. It was an entire class in which I saw, gosh, I want to say at least 12 Pasolini films. That is- your personal hell. Well, at the time, I was really excited. I was like, well, I've seen the Gospel According to St. Matthew. I really liked that. And Pasolini is supposed to be really good. And again, there there was one other film I really liked. But uh, anyway, but I, I'm not here to slag on Pasolini. I can do that any old day. Well, it's okay if you do, because then I will just react and say you're wrong. Right. So it's all no, good. Right, exactly. But uh, Earth hangs in the balance. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the final, it's Armageddon really just, be, yeah. No, but I assume most of the other people had written papers. You know, the other students were smart people, very serious, and we all got along pretty well. And I assume they wrote papers about like, 
you know, Brisson or, or uh, yeah. you know, uh, Godard or, or De Sica or something. And here we have like Space Truckers by Stuart Gordon. So anyway, I will say, though, the paper was pretty good because I dusted it off recently just to look <laughs> at it after I saw the movie again. And uh, so anyway, my I part- love the confidence. What's that? I said, I love the confidence. Uh, honestly, I was surprised. I, I don't mean that in that your paper wouldn't be good because I, without having read it, would assume that it would be. But also, you know what? I always like it when people exude a level of the confidence that I feel like is actually looked down in our society. I agree. Um, I think there's something about somebody who says, you know, I'm actually really good at this thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Like, uh, there's this movie, Ruby Sparks, where uh, Zoe Kazan's character at the beginning, she's drawing... And Paul Dana walks up to her and he's like, oh, what are you doing? She's like, I'm drawing and I'm super good at it. And I'm like, damn, (laughs) she really is. I mean, her character is. I'm like, I I just appreciated that. Just no bones about it. I'm actually, this is something I enjoy and I've gotten really good at it over time. You know, she is like a whole other thing. The the two should not be conflated. Mm, Indeed. Indeed. So I wrote the paper, but um, I mean, honestly, we were pretty down with the movie, partly because... um, the Canyon character kind of fits in with that, like that lone wolf ethic that you would see yeah. in a lot of sci-fi flicks from the eighties. So I was thinking like uh, De Niro's character, he plays this guy Buttle in Brazil. Oh yeah. 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 The electrician or whatever. Right. The guy who likes, he's like a thief of the night. He comes in like a ninja. He, he fixes everything <laughs> and he leaves, you know, uh, Milo Estevez and repo man. And you know, you've got like Sigourney Weaver in the, in the Ripley films. And they're very much, all those guys are basically, uh, kind of butting up against a company. Like in the Alien films, they're literally just called the company, just like in this movie. I was going to say, like, well, I think you're also responding to, if I can maybe mm-hmm. add to, which is that I think the 80s saw a huge, it probably with Alien being the ground zero, mm. uh, saw a huge boon in interjecting a sense of blue collar into sci-fi. Definitely, definitely. I would say that's true. I mean, you see some of it, of course, in the 70s, but yeah, by by this point, you're seeing... People who are sometimes on the margins of society, who are not like scientists or astronauts, they're maybe people who are existing in a world that they have very little control over, you know? So, in in that way, a lot of us could probably relate to them more, you know? Well, yeah. Which makes this, in 1996, a brave, brave movie. (laughs) True. I agree. When I think Stuart Gordon, I think brave man. No. (laughs) I I actually do think he's super talented, but... Uh, just a little bit about the cast. I'm not really a Dennis Hopper fan, typically. Um, I don't like his directing almost at all, but I, I do like his performances in like Blue Velvet and, you know, Hoosiers, uh, Flashback. And then this, he's really good in this. And I have to say, watching it again, I was like, yeah, he really does embody the character well. I mean, there's, there's little things he does that just crack me up. Like there's this part near the end where he's fighting the, the bio mutant robo warrior things in the cab of the space truck. And he's got like this little like crappy dollar store green flashlight <laughs> in his hand. <laughs> and like he never gets rid of it. He's like fighting them. And I don't know what he thought he was going to do with this flashlight, <laughs> but it always, it's just a little detail. They don't draw any attention to it. But after the third or fourth time you see it, you're like, yeah, he never really gives up. You know, he, he's just holding on tight to that thing. <laughs> well, you know, capitalism thrives in the darkness. So indeed. And woof, I have so much to say about that. I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and, like there's like another part. Right near the end where he's like, where the bio warriors are like right in the thrusters or something. And he turns on the thrusters and melts them. And he's like, hot enough for you, which I just, I don't know why, but I think that's hilarious. Cause it's just, it's just one of those stupid things. People always say you walk into a 
you know, uh, like a drugstore or, or a store, you're like, yeah, hot enough for you? Yeah, stick a fork with me, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I can't complain. Nobody listens to me, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's just that kind of bullshit banter, which just means nothing. It just, yeah. the idea of somebody just yelling, hot enough for you in, during the climactic action sequence while he's barreling his, his truck towards earth. I don't know. <laughs> it's just such a silly, cheap line. And yet it works so perfectly in such a grand moment, <laughs> you know. So I, I do really like Hopper in this a lot. Um, I thought Steven Dorff's pretty good too. Um, I don't really think of him very much. I mean, I've seen a few movies he's in, like he was in Backbeat, which I really liked, which is a movie about the Beatles when they were young. But a lot of the stuff he was in during this time, he basically played kind of like a bastard or a villain. Like he was in like Blade, uh, and God, what else? Uh, a movie called Blood and Wine, which is not very good and other stuff like that so th this is like kind of his ah shucks character and it was sort of him playing against the usual type usually he played like the bad boy slightly villainous dude and in this case he's like super earnest he's he's like you know ah just got my license and i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna ship you know i'm gonna, you know i'm gonna truck and through space and you know i don't know there's just something really refreshing it, about that this is a slight tangent, but sure. I'm just genuinely curious. But have you seen? I haven't, so that's why I'm curious if you've seen it. Have you seen um, the Sofia Coppola movie somewhere? I have. I have. Okay. Um, it, I knew he was in it, so I just didn't know yeah, if he was any good in that. He's the lead. He's actually quite good in it. Um, it's not. I didn't really care for it while I was watching it. I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't really yeah, into yeah. it. And when it ended, I was kind of like, "Well, that was." That was something, but I have it's to admit, it's minor Coppola. It is minor. I would say it's definitely minor Coppola, but it, I mean, truly. But I will say that as time goes on, there are certain scenes that have really gained in my mind as time goes on. Like, there's a scene where he's at the um, Chateau Marmont and he's in the elevator with Benicio del Toro playing Benicio del Toro. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're like, hey, man, because they're both famous actors and yeah. neither of them know each other, but they know they're famous. And when you're famous, I guess you just you sort of acknowledge and you're the only two people in the elevator. It's kind of like you flash your membership card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's like, hey, man, and so there's a pause. And he's like, so what room are you in? And Stephen Dorff's like, oh, I'm in room you know, 308 or whatever. And Benicio del Toro's like, oh, man, yeah, I met Bono in that room. <laughs> it's just, and then, you know, he gets up and that's the whole exchange. But it's yeah. that scene sticks with me for some reason because it's so, there's, that's, that whole movie is really made up of, of a lot of very small scenes that don't mean a whole lot on their own. Well, you know, but they, the, the other thing, though, that Benicio del Toro is honestly much funnier than people give him credit for. So, oh, I agree. There's a mischievousness to so many of his, um, performances i mean even stuff like in traffic oh yeah. there's this kind of sidelong glance he'll do sometimes and he's like he's like am i really gonna have to explain this to you now <laughs> or whatever yeah you know? yeah and then pta finally gave him an actual comedic role which was wonderful and uh inherent vice so. oh yeah. so good yes he's the lawyer yes clients pay me for work doc clients pay me for work and he's like a maritime lawyer right that's yeah. i love that it's such a specialized field <laughs> yep and he's like, I should say it was a three hour two, <laughs> which I, it was so perfect. It's like, if they oh, hadn't yeah. said that, it would have been wrong, you know, but, oh, yeah. but anyway, anyway, at the time that I originally saw this, um, like I said, it was, you know, late nineties. And I remember thinking that the Steven Dorff character was a type of person that I was starting to see more and more. And, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way at all, but you know, they have, he's, he's a guy who's got good values and a sense of fair play, all that stuff. But he's really only grown up in a totally corporatized landscape. Like, you know, like in the 90s, it would get to a point where you'd be talking to somebody and they'd be like, 
you know, they'd never really had a chance to, I don't know, shop at a family owned grocery store or like yeah. hear a pirate radio broadcast or drink at a townie bar or whatever. And it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's not like they're missing everything, but it was one of those things where he, as opposed to the Dennis Hopper character who remembers, uh, I mean, certainly a future, his, his past is still very futuristic, but it was much less uh, corporatized and synthesized around one company. And it, in a way it's, I don't know, I find the Dorf character a little touching in that way. Cause yeah. like I said, he's got a good sense of fair play. He, he doesn't want to, yeah, it's just naive. It's not stupidity. Oh no, exactly. And he wants to learn. So I like mm-hmm. that. But also I will say, I mean, the ending also pretty much shows how far he came because it was, uh, you know, John that was like, well, you got to keep the money. <laughs> of course it's, uh, whatever you call his decision to uh, throw it out the window right. uh, that ends up saving the day. Right. And it basically the guy, the scorpion stings itself basically where the guy thinks, ah, I've got them out of the way. And then of course them being good, Which having good values is a great visual metaphor. I think too, I mean, not to get too basic, but you know, like use that scorpion stinging itself. Like the fact that it's, uh, what's being said is a briefcase of money is actually weaponized, <laughs> you know, ammunition. That's a great and so point. So the fact that you can actually use that against the higher ups is basically the most almost succinct metaphor for class warfare and how you can actually dismantle capitalism I've ever seen. <laughs> That's actually a really good point because I mean, I of course I, I clocked the stuff about you know how he accidentally kills himself in the process, uh, mm-hmm. but the idea that money. It could be weaponized in a literal sense. That's a very, very astute point, actually. So, good on you. Yeah, I like that. Oh, thank you. Uh, and then I would say just one more thing about the cast. I really like Debbie Mazar, and I've always liked her. She's one of those people that is in a bunch of stuff, but she's almost never a lead. I think this is maybe the closest I ever saw her to being a lead in a movie. I think she was a a lead on like a minor legal show in the 90s that wasn't so great. But in this, like, this is the closest she gets to really not being a supporting character and i think you i don't know if you agree but i think in all of cinema she possesses one of the most striking pairs of eyes yes eyes. i would definitely say i understand where you're coming from it's like you know what i mean it's like silver blue windex colored it's there's something just mesmerizing about i mean it's up there with like lauren bacall or somebody i i just there's something about her and 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 for that reason alone i feel like she's not utilized enough uh and she's and in in this movie she's kind of great because she's a little wholesome but she's also a little worldly too she's like fran drescher meets betty page (laughs) you know where you can oh yeah you know she's genuinely fran drescher is kind of what i was thinking when i first saw her to the point where i'm like doesn't sound like Fran Drescher. Right, but it's like, is that Fran? Yeah, because I mean, it's true. I mean, she was in films during that time. The thing I randomly know uh, Debbie Mazar most from is probably Batman Forever, where she played oh, you're right. uh, one of two faces, you know, depending on if you wanted sugar or in her case, her name was Spice. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, so anyway. Yeah, it was, it was her funny. and what, Drew Barrymore was the other one? Yes. That's right. Yep, I totally sugar. forgot about that. <laughs> Uh, and she's she's in Goodfellas, uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, she's again, she in this movie especially, she's got that squeaky clean yet sexy thing uh, where you know, which is never more, of course, apparent than the the scene in which the climate control goes on the blank and she has to 
take off most of her clothes. And and, and I, I will point out that if for almost the rest of the entire movie, she is in a, a various states of undress, which I'm not yes. opposed to. And I found that <laughs> very sneaky, Stuart Gordon. Although I will say Stephen Dorff is uh, just as naked. So and uh, oh no, that is very true. So Although I, I find it slightly uh, ironic because I was probably never more attracted to her than uh, well I, throughout the whole movie in general. Sure. But uh, then the moment she cosplayed as uh, the yes Charles Dance character, yes um, Ma- Makanudo, <laughs> yes something about that jacket. So I know <laughs> with the glasses and the cigar. I know, and I love that whole scene where she's like. Burr. And the guy's like, yeah. oh, you want me to kill them? She's like, no. She goes, uh, you want me to leave you alone? <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. So that's kind of my opening thoughts about it. I mean, I have some thoughts about the aesthetics and, and how it ties into the, the the main themes and the plot. But that's kind of my, sure. my thoughts. I'd love to hear what you thought, because I haven't really talked to you about your impressions until right now. No, it's, I was going to say, it's been a busy couple of weeks, so we haven't been able to really chat about it. So mm-hmm. this is going to be all fresh uh, between the two of us. I got to say... I was 50-50 before we watched this because while I did have faith in Stuart Gordon because I've liked Reanimator and um, I've liked him in interviews and just he seemed like a cool dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been weirdly burnt on the idea of sci-fi that came out during this time. I almost find myself like sci-fi out of all the three genre genres like horror, f- uh, fantasy, sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I kind of find myself the most charitable toward horror, which is not to say that it's my all-time favorite of the three, but it's the one I have the least amount of expectation for it. Like, the bare minimum, you know, has to be met, and then I'm pretty much just on board. Whereas sci-fi, because that's more my bread and butter, because I genuinely do love Mm sci-fi, I get a little picky to the point where I'm so ready to almost always eat up these kinds of movies because I really do love anything pre-CGI or even early CGI when they used a little CGI to, you know, to really complement the uh, the actual hard models and whatnot. Right. Um, I love this entire era. I mean, I, you know, I've watched old episodes of Doctor Who, so I have no problem with cheapness or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. But I always find that there's like this weird fine line where I, I always want one of two things. I don't need them both. If they're both there, that's great. But um, in this kind of era and genre, the movie either has to like hit me over the head with its sci-fi concepts, even if it completely misses the mark <laughs> about them, you know, theoretically, like I can eat up something like event horizon because they won't stop talking about <laughs> quantum physics, even though they're completely wrong, even theoretically <laughs> about like everything they say, you know, it's like, but at least they're, 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 they're doing it. They're, they're really trying to, you know, whatever. Or the flip side of that is at the very least, if I can't do any of that, then the aesthetics have to be so singular and I have to really see the sci-fi come out in that random prop that they're not even using that's behind them. You know, and it doesn't matter how cheap it is, but someone thought to put that there and, and make up the set in the way they do and all that, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a lot of movies from this era that were from the 90s in particular, that were that kind of directed video, whatever, that fails on both fronts. <laughs> and almost like pathetically so, because I feel like, okay, if you can't be smart, like, you know, like to do a sci-fi concept, it shouldn't be that hard to like do a little window dressing because you don't need money to do it. You know, right. you just have to have imagination. Uh, 
so I was like a little skeptical. I gotta say, after being burned a lot of times, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel like I would have stayed away from it thinking that I could not live up to the promise of what the title, <laughs> you know, is selling you. Like I wanted to see this weird marriage of uh, a sci-fi frontier with this kind of blue collared grimy uh, esque, you know, uh, set dressing or whatever. And this movie went above and beyond in that department, you know, not in budget, but in uh, cre uh, care and creation and whatnot. I mean, every time there was like a zero gravity scene and you know that somebody is just holding up an item in front of the camera, <laughs> you know, like, like I, I love that so much because I don't care that it doesn't look realistic. I care that they have no shame. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I do. So it's like that kind of unabashedness that I really think makes space truckers work. And that's not even including what ended up, I think, sealing the deal, which we'll probably get into in depth a little later, but the whole capitalistic message and whatnot, which I think definitely Stuart Gordon always had something to say and, um, you know, was never just interested in the genre so much as how these genres can always almost offer a more provocative uh take on something that you know is can be sometimes dry at you know whatever mm -hmm. so i enjoyed the hell out of this i thought the cast was uniformly excellent and i'm actually with you that i don't really care for dennis hopper mm. and it's mostly because of his voice <laughs> yeah but i will say the times i've enjoyed dennis hopper the most besides something like blue velvet you know where it's like well at least you know, like he was hired because David Lynch, you know, let him be weird, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but the things I've enjoyed him the most were like his turn as like Bowser and Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> which, I was wondering if you were going to mention yep, that. <laughs> because I don't think he's that good. So I actually think when Dennis Hopper is allowed to wander on a set and just vomit words, <laughs> I, I think he's more believable uh, in that respect. So, and I, and I really got that in this movie. I mean, there are like, you know, um, I'm not saying it's like totally improv or anything like that, but I do get the, I, the sense that Dennis Hopper was uh, essentially able to create his own character, which um, I feel like means, you know, that he, I don't think he's got a wide arsenal, uh, you know, as far as how many characters he can create, <laughs> but he knows he can do this kind of blue collar stick, uh, that kind of crotchety old man vibe, you know, all these things. And so he just kind of leans into it uh, perfectly. There's a lot of great one-liners in this to the point where like some of it's genuinely clever. Like I love when he uh, yells, oh God, I think it's when they're tied up. Oh, when, oh, I think I know which line because it he, kills me too. Oh yeah. Mike, uh, Mike says like, leave her alone, you half electric asshole. And then he goes, uh, he didn't mean that. He respects the brave way you confront your disability. <laughs> like, I'll give him credit. He delivers that line hilariously. He doesn't miss a beat, you know. Oh, whatever. yeah. Uh, that's um, part of the what makes it so funny to me is like he doesn't there's not even a reaction, but he's like, he's like, I knew he was gonna say this and I've got some I've got a rejoinder. I'm gonna I'm gonna oh, smooth yeah. over this. You know? Yep. And you know, it's that kind of shit eating grin type thing, and, and he does that so well. And he also does the weirder parts where like I feel like he forgets his lines and yet it almost adds to the piece because he's kind of like bumbling through it. And all that does create this weird workman-like uh, blue-collar vibe uh, to the point where I can't even tell if some of these lines are written this way or if, like I said, they didn't have many takes to go off of. But like sometimes they mess things up so badly 
to the point where it actually sounds more realistic. Like, I think at one point, uh, Debbie Mazar, I don't know if this was in the script or not, but she says a line that says something like, did you hear something back there that sounds like there's something back there? Yeah. And, and it's like, that's the kind of weird thing that people will accidentally say in real life because they're not trying to think about how, you know, they say things right. or whatever. Um, and so anyway, I, I really appreciated this kind of ramshackle uh casing over this movie where i feel like everybody was allowed to just really get into the moment and um you know pace around the small set and just kind of vibrate uh so to speak um obviously beyond that there's there's some actual interesting themes here and i i I hesitate to call it deep, but I wouldn't call it dumb, you know, and I think that's the key. It's like, it doesn't have to be deep so long as it's technically uh, consistent and, you know, actually worthwhile. And I think for sure it definitely is with their entire, um, and I think that's where we're going to go into uh, Mm -hmm. now, which is this whole idea of the company and the corporatization of these uh, professions and also obviously of just the world at large. But I was pleasantly surprised that space truckers never stopped the movie (laughs) to make these points, but did uh, definitely um, did not coast on mentioning it it once and then just hoping that people would, uh, you know, allow that to somehow give enough oxygen for these ideas. It it peppers it in throughout the whole thing and it never once feels inorganic. So Mm -hmm. um, I was just curious your thoughts on this entire kind of, I think very anti-capitalistic screed. What, what are your thoughts, Dan? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with that. Um, it's it's definitely opposed to the kind of predatory capitalism which basically results, at least in the movie, and you know, again in the aliens movies, with you essentially have this one company that has a monopoly, you know, over everything. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, uh, one thing I was I was struck by watching it again because this is my fourth time seeing it, but I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. But one thing that really struck me was how perfectly the aesthetic reflects the critique of capitalism. I mean, and this is before like Idiocracy or other films like that that did a great job of doing this, kind of skewering the same subject. But like, I love the cartoon aesthetic of the oversized sets and costumes, like like the hub diners, this gyroscopic, you know, tourist thing where, you know, you can almost imagine like Frank Poole from 2001, just like jogging. Oh, yeah. the thing. Yep. Uh, and it's like Dayglo uh, purples, faux Western wear. Uh, there's even, even that scene at the beginning where um, the, the pre-credit sequence where uh, they're trying out this robot thing and they like shut the doors and like the bolts for the doors are humongous. They're like a Fritz Lang metropolis sized bolt. <laughs> it's like, bonk. And so I just, I loved how they went they oversized everything, you know, but, and, and again, you know, also the fact that the slogans, the logos are omnipresent. I mean, you got the square pigs for square meals. Uh, you've got, um, suck a zucks, you know, that, yeah. I mean, there's, there's that moment where basically they think they're about to die and they're like, Oh, let's have some beer. And he's just he says suck a zucks. Cause that's the slogan. And you're eventually going to repeat something you've heard a million times and there's no getting around it, you know, yep. but, uh, it's all like, it, it, it's i mean you have someone like blade runner where there's ubiquitous advertising everywhere in the film but in in blade runner well the blade runner films both of them it's very atmospheric and artful in a ugly way um and, and kind of seductive and here it's like all clashing colors and company trademarks they're jumping 
out into your face and there's no sense of aesthetic placement. Everything's just piled on top of each other. And in a way, it's kind of, uh, I mean, a pretty accurate prediction of what uh, the modern interwebs is like, where you have this sort of glitter gulch of clashing banners and pop-ups. And yeah. It's just, just abominable. <laughs> I'm completely with you because like, like, okay, on the record, I'll say that I think uh, both Blade Runner movies are a better movie than Space Truckers. Sure. However, one of the best parts of those movies with that beat, you know, I mean, the classic Coca-Cola, Billboard, you know, like these, mm-hmm. the way that they display advertisements or whatever, uh, almost seems like it's a victim of the very message it's trying to, you know, subliminally, you know, chastise as far as like, oh, we're so embedded into, you know, these advertisements, whatever. And I feel like something like Space Truckers is actually maybe more realistic as to the trajectory of this because like there is nothing subtle anymore about any advertisement. You know, right. like just because right. it's everywhere does not mean that it is subliminal. I mean, I know subliminal is a thing and that that is how it works, you know, whatever. But, the, you know, um, I feel like people, and that's in in particular, it's kind of like the, people think advertisements and the way to do it, in, especially in sci-fi, is to do what I would call like the Apple route, you know, to make it sleek and sexy. Sure. To almost like show like, well, you know, in the future, it's just going to be one of those things, whatever. It's like, really? Because we seem to be getting worse at worse at this. I mean, you know. You uh, have you seen a pop up these days? Like it's not sleek yeah. and sexy on the internet. The other day, I bought a. I was so mad. Um, <laughs> I was so mad as a victim of capitalism. Go on, <laughs> I'm intrigued. I bought a Amazon Kindle and I want to read my books. Super excited. I saw a really good deal on it. Okay, like it was like. $25, $30 less than it usually is, and it usually doesn't waver that much, you know, whatever. Right. Pulled the trigger, bought it, I get it. So I find it has this weird thing where on the, uh, when you click the on button, um, whenever you wake up the Kindle, it has advertisements. Okay, I'm not oh, okay. that like, who the devil put these advertisements? Like, it's not like I was like super shocked or whatever. They're like, <laughs> right. oh, okay, great. The default thing is that they enable advertisements instead of like, you know, some picturesque thing or whatever. So I look in the settings, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's weird that there's no... There's no way to shut way it to off, essentially. Turn the bot, whatever. Okay, guess what? There is a way to turn it off. You can pay $20 to permanently disable Son the advertisements. That is so and lame. as an idiot, I did it. Because I was almost like just trying to pay for, you know, peace of mind because I really do not want to be reminded of how much of a shrill I am, <laughs> which of course then just made me one, uh, you know, a shit, but yeah. whatever. I'm like, well, I guess that's why it's, you know, $25 less than it normally, you know, you're getting the one that's got whatever. So anyway, like, but it was, but that's how obnoxious the advertisements were that I paid to get rid of them. You know, like, I don't think people realize how not okay we are with advertisement, even if they are everywhere. And I feel mm-hmm. like something like Space Truckers shows that while we get used to it, while we obviously consider it to be just one of those things that has to be a part of society, mm. it, it's it's always fucking garish. 
Yes, garish is like the perfect word. I was just going to say that. Um, it, it's absolutely like that. And it's like, I mean, again, and I, I agree the Blade Runner films are definitely better. I mean, they're some of my favorite movies. Yeah, and that was just but, for comparison's sake. But I mean, well, no, I mean, I, I brought it up too. I mean, but I mean, but the thing about the Blade Runner movies is it's very much designed by one person. So the entire city and all the ads are all designed in one aesthetic mode yeah which is great it's very beautiful but like in space truckers it's not like that man it's yeah. just logos and and everybody's trying to catch your eye so it's hot pinks and yellows and you know i mean it's it's just very much everybody is trying to you know get your attention a little more than the other guy which is ironic because in a movie where the company is in power, you would think that that kind of thing would go away. But I think this base truckers definitively comes down on the side of, no, it makes it worse. Well, yeah. And, and at that point, you start to wonder, well, is this even, an, uh, I mean, some people say this with your eyes, you know, with advertisement, it's not necessarily just to advertise a product. The main idea may be to just soften you up for the idea that, you know, the people in charge are the CEOs of major corporations and there are betters. I mean, which is a very simplistic yeah. way to say that, but there's a part, <laughs> this is really weird, I know, but there's a part at the very end where they're in that big yellow escape pod and they, they ride off on and then they end up on earth and it's like half buried in the sand. And like the yellow and some of the logo stuff, it looks like uh, one of these sculpture kiosks by this guy ashley bickerton uh that he did in the 80s where he would just have like 14 logos all next to each other and it was like supposed to be a kiosk but it didn't do anything and like i honestly to the point where i was like i wonder if this that was that was part i don't know you know maybe i'm crazy sure. but it's it's always one of those things where it's like well, i mean you are well i am but... i am but i think i'm also probably correct on this one so <laughs> i will say i with the release of this episode i am going to experiment a little bit with uh show notes mm. so if you uh, listeners are going to peek behind the curtain here but if you send me a link or something to a picture of what you're talking about i will include that in the show notes and if you're listening to this episode you will be able to see it on your podcast app oh sure yeah i'd love to actually uh do you mind if we take a quick break um why don't we take a quick break yes i love it love that idea <laughs> all right and then when we come back we'll uh, continue this discussion so we will speak to you well no we won't speak to you actually we're more speaking at each other at this point well but yeah. uh you know you can listen to us uh mm. in a few moments <laughs> i uh, made dirty calls uh, because i'm a We are back here at Project Exploitation, talking about 1996, 1997, 1990, whatever you call it, Space Truckers by 
Stuart Gordon. And uh, just before we took a little interlude, we were talking about the kind of corporatization of this entire world, not just the earth, uh, but could they even say the president of the world is here? Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) Which is pretty great. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, let's jump back into that realm. Dan, what were you going to say? Oh well, you know, I was uh, I was thinking about um, uh, the sets and the costumes. Which, by the way, the costumes are by John and Ann Bloomfield. So kudos to them. I think it's I think they yeah. did a great job. Um, yeah. But I think um, the whole thing, the set design, the whole thing, kind of I feel like it's meant to mirror a concept that actually was sort of introduced a few years later by a guy named uh, Mark Fisher, uh, and uh, he had this thing called capitalist realism. And basically, the the thesis statement to it is, it's easier for us at this point in the Western world to imagine, like, the end of the world, you know, to imagine the apocalypse, than it is to imagine not having capitalism, you know, or this form of capitalism. It's like, that's it's become so embedded that it's impossible to escape, and, and our imagination simply beggars to even try to comprehend it, you know? And I, I feel like that's kind of a something that we see, uh, which is in the case of the uh, Sags figure, who's the at the end is president of the world, uh, you know, and uh, he's he, I mean, he's basically the most visible leader of the company, but he's I mean, I'm, there may be people above him or whatever, but they seem to have this monopoly on everything. And it's Sags at the end, he appears to have basically downsized all of his political opposition, <laughs> you know, both uh, commercial and political. Uh, and he's kind of merged the company with the government. And he's like, oh, the government's been privatized in high time too. I mean, it's just something kind of brilliant about that. And, or, or uh, just the, even the practices of uh, Interpork, which is apparently a subsidiary of, you know, the company i'm guessing but it, you know how they systematically seem to kind of shortchange the drivers you know they'll like they'll ask them to make some impossible deadline and then when they can't make it they're like well we can only pay you a, you know a fourth of what we said you know it's just this this it's very trumpian this idea of just shortchanging all the people who do the work and it just as a matter of policy not just like oh i'm not this this isn't good or this part wasn't good this is more like no we plan in advance to shortchange you because that's what we do every time you know yeah so I thought that was kind of intriguing. So that's kind of my some of my main thoughts. Um, well, I, I was going to say I could kind of add to that. In that yeah, go ahead. Um, one thing I liked is that this movie kind of smuggles in a pretty common, uh, I think, trope, but that ends up almost being so common that it's kind of slyly commentary. So mm. the idea of uh, you know smugglers basically having to smuggle something that they don't know anything about, you know, like <laughs> no no questions asked, whatever. Right. Um, is obviously not original at all to this movie or anything by any means. However, that in and of itself kind of becomes a, I, I would say at least a somewhat pointed reference to the way you know capitalism works, which is that even though you are the ones doing the work, uh, the product is not for you to even really uh, visualize and or conceptualize you know Mm -hmm. you and the less you know about it even in situations in which it's not even illegal or even dangerous uh but the more beneficial it is 
to the higher ups because technically speaking uh knowledge is power and the more you know about something the more and the more you could technically you know have input and or you know ideas or whatever then the more your value goes up and mm-hmm. that is directly uh you know against the entire point which is to pay you to only do one thing because God forbid you're you're a human being and multifaceted, <laughs> right? Well, you, you remember the SAGS guy throughout the movie. He keeps kind of obsessing over well, we have to have deniability. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, and then that's why he well tries to kill uh, Makanudo. You know, at, at one point, and then at the end, he's like he's giving them the money, which of course is a bomb. You know, it's all about. <laughs> So only you only know this much of this. It's it's kind of like distributed uh, intelligence where everybody plays a small part in the process, uh, but nobody knows exactly what it is except for the guy who is at the guys at the top, you know, and and it does add it does allow for de- deniability and it makes us feel a little less guilty about maybe participating in something that's really awful, like um, uh, some something that's going to cause uh, severe consequences to the climate or something like that. It's like, well, I just, oh, yeah. you know, I just, I just drove the truck or, you know, I just put this little thing in the box. I mean, I don't know what it is, you know, and, yeah. and I think that's kind of a way to distribute it in such a way that nobody feels guilty and yet. Everybody sort of is a little, but anyway. Right. No, but it's true that that there's, uh, you know, complicity going on that uh, we should all technically have, I think, a say as to what we want to participate in, but there's no money to be made from that kind of democracy. Right, right. It only works if everybody is mindlessly, you know, going along with everything. Right, exactly. Uh, it's like this um, st- uh, this state where basically nobody has any particular agency. Be- we've we've abandoned it in favor of just kind of getting our little part done and getting paid. You know, I mean, yeah. like, like you know, you think about that scene just at the very beginning, the opening, uh, the pre credits, I should say, where Makanudo is like, you know, he's he's basically the the robot goes through and like slaughters like 40 some soldiers i want to say and like oh, yeah. basically the only people left are him and sags and he's just he's so excited oh the, we worked out so great everything he doesn't seem to notice like there's all these dead bodies around him i mean there's, he's like oh the exercise concluded everybody stand down and it's like dude no one's left you're the only one left and, and you know it, it it almost reminds me um have you seen a movie called The Manhattan Project from it's from the late 80s with John Lithgow? No. It's it's pretty good. Um basically uh he plays a uh, essentially a, a a nuclear physicist who's helping this company develop weapons. I don't know if it's directly for the government or what, but it's like it's like there's a moment near the end of the film where he realizes, oh, this is what I'm doing is I'm making things that blow everybody up. Like for him, it's all very theoretical and it's, it's an interesting puzzle to solve. And there's a moment near the end where the John Mahoney character, who's like his boss is like, oh, oh yeah, you didn't, you didn't think about that before, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that's true. The Macanudo guy where he's kind of like, oh, it's such an in- interesting thing. He never thought, oh, you know, they could use this against me, <laughs> you know, or, or anyone, yeah. you know? No, that's true. Well, and, you know, I was going to say the whole, the idea of having that kind of blind faith is what's profitable, right? Mm-hmm. Well, also, technically speaking, the no questions asked policy is directly what led, ironically, to, you know, the demise of the entire system because yes. they didn't question what was in the briefcase because they've been indoctrinated <laughs> into a, you know, very insidious, uh, 
see no evil, speak no evil type, you mm-hmm. know, uh, society. No, that's very true. And, and also, I mean, and this kind of leads to another thing that I really like about Stuart Gordon's films in general is that he has this way of blending like genuine scares and, and gore and uh, like horror elements. And even in his really horror movies, he'll have this, but he kind of combines it with like what I would almost call like a Wiley E. Coyote element, where it's a little cartoonish at times. Like he's not above a sillier gag, but, but I mean, he doesn't approach either one of these modes with like condescension. It's not like, oh, ho, ho, you know what I mean? It's, it's, he clearly loves both of these. And, yeah. and that way I, I can only really think of a couple people who really do that too. I mean, one is, I guess, Joe Dante to an extent. But Joe Dante was never quite as, he, he never dipped, I mean, he never really, he dipped his toe in horror, but he never really went full on the way Stuart Gordon did. Yeah. I was going to say, if Spielberg produces you, then you're not quite, <laughs> you know, like you, you haven't quite annexed yourself to actually immerse yourself, in my opinion. But. True, true. Yeah. I mean, Stuart Gordon never released anything through Amblin Entertainment, you know, although it would have yeah. been interesting, you know. Yeah. But I mean, like, you know, like that scene where I think it's like the guy's name, I think his name is just Sam the Pirate. And he's like, smells like somebody's been cooking hamburgers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's you. And he's like, oh, yeah, and then yeah. he dies very dramatically. <laughs> uh, you know, there's like another scene where, uh, oh, God, what is the guy? Mr. Cut, who's um, the uh, second command of the pirates and another pirate. They're inspecting the cargo. And then the captain uh, scares them and they're like, Whoa, oh, 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 it's, it's just the captain. It's just like this very cartoon. Like there was no reason to have that line in there. There was another visual joke I thought was hilarious. And again, I didn't notice until this most recent time I saw it, but there's a part where Cindy is talking to Canyon and she's like, she's like, well, there's a chance they might pick up the beacon. Don't you think? And they cut to Canyon and there's like a Chicago Cubs pennant behind him. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, there's always a chance, baby. And it's like, dude, this is hopeless. <laughs> I mean, I mean, of course, I realize the Cubs have, have certainly won the World Series, you know, back in 2016. But still, I mean, yeah. they were so famous for so long. It was just kind of like, uh, well, of course, he supports the Cubs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's hopeless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of like gore and or if not gore in this case, just kind of body cringe sure <laughs> uh let's talk really quickly about Macanudo. yes <laughs> the entire scene in which uh cindy essentially offers herself uh under duress but um it technically i would say leading that scene which i find i thought was an interesting dynamic because mm-hmm. that's not usually the case like i i, I found it interesting because even in a movie like space truckers they allowed uh, the character of cindy to have her own agency even when being a victim, which I thought was pretty interesting. Agreed. But um, specifically, of course, with uh, Macanudo, that is probably going to be the most memorable scene for me. Uh, just the entire like makeup of props, yeah. uh, clothing, uh, makeup, you know, all of that coming together to form one of the most grotesque <laughs> and not overly grotesque because actually it was pretty simplistic you know it was kind of a less is more but mm-hmm. just the slight suggestion of like first you don't even see it but you know you just see him miming because it's off camera like what he's doing so you get this weird impressionistic idea of what it might 
look like you know down there and whatever mm-hmm. and then well, he's, course, he's just he's just tucking in a shirt i believe is what's oh, happening there yes yeah he's a he's, so. he's a mother tucker um <laughs> and you know he's, he's doing all this you know whatever in these motions whatever and it's kind of ridiculous because it's like you can hear some pretty great foley work you know of like totally just so exaggerated whatever but then we also get the payoff to it which is that after cindy gains the upper hand and shoves him down we get a full-on cut to what he looks like but it's what he looks like post when he was using the equipment so to speak yes so it's this weird almost like delayed punchline mm. that totally works uh in the in the movie's favor because it was one of the weirder things i've seen in anything um <laughs> and i like the fact that what what bothered me the most about the entire scene, I say that in a good way, right. was that it was less about the character's action because, like I said, technically, I mean, it's all, it is rape, it's non consensual, but technically, Cindy is slightly, you know, more in charge and you almost get that vibe even before you know what she is going to do or whatever. Right. Um, but that he's not even being like this cartoonishly evil person he's just excited to finally use this uh, as he says seldom use uh, reproductive uh, you know whatever machinery um, and I don't know I found that whole like uh, towing the line of like weirdly not even cartoonish but almost childish like approach to sex which I, I, thought, it was, I thought was hilarious that coupled with the actual visual gag of what it looked like yeah no i agree uh that is one of the most memorable scenes if not the most memorable um because i always think about he's like uh this is designed to you know give women pure ecstasy or whatever and then <laughs> yeah. the thing won't start and he's like god damn yeah. it the one yeah, time the i finally have a chance to do this and god freaking all right give me a uh, give me a crescent wrench i'll see what i can okay i can fix this you know mm-hmm. but it, I, and of course i always love that line where he's like just close your eyes and think of brooklyn which <laughs> cracks me up yeah but uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, there is something oddly, uh, not chivalrous exactly about Makino, but he's very realistic. He's very pragmatic. He's like, I have a, I have a lot of drugs here. I have some booze. Uh, he's like, you know, we can make this as painless for you as possible because I know I'm no prize. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And when she technically dictates this, you know, and says like, I'll, I'll offer you the whatever. It's him who's kind of like, really? Like, <laughs> like. Oh, like I was gonna torture you guys, but I mean, uh, yeah, okay. Like, hold on, you know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, he's got a weird. Um, uh, I don't want to say code of honor because he doesn't really. But no, but it's got this weird bashful kind of side yes, to him. Yes, exactly. Where he's like, "Who me?" <laughs> well, and, and uh, he has, I think, one of the most badass last lines in any movie, actually, where he's got that cigar and he says. So you boys got any use for this? And then he just dies. Like his last thoughts are, oh, I'd hate to see this cigar go to waste. Yeah. (laughs) I had forgotten how beautiful that was, you know? Uh, And, you know, as you, as you were saying, I mean, that's almost, I think that was entirely his, his outfit, his costume and, and the design that was entirely practical effects. I believe that was in camera. Yeah. Uh, It looks like it. Yeah. I mean, there's very little CG in the film. You know, I think in a lot of ways, cheap cgi i mean you had had films that were big budget who were doing cg pretty well but it was very rare to see us a, a smaller budget film the art form was sort of in its infancy as far as low budget quality goes and you know like to the point where like 
you can kind of always tell when like a special effects shot is coming because like you know like the the blacks on the shadows of the character like don't match the shade of the shadows of black on the matting behind them you're like oh okay we just switched to something something's about to happen something's about to explode but yeah the in-camera stuff is quite good and very inventive you know i would agree with that and i like you know the kind of you know i love this era of kind of hybrid you know where cgi was really just not just born but like really starting to come into its own as to like what you could get away with and whatnot um before it was actually like perfected and i say perfected loosely because i feel like it's quote-unquote perfect form is actually a product of uncanny valley but whatever um, it's the whole problem of <laughs> like have, even even the dirt is clean you know what i mean it's like it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. a little too clean everything is. yeah but you have something like this where an, an effect that sticks out like a sore thumb to me though looks weirdly uh tech like it looks like it has texture you know mm-hmm. where um i think at one point when they're being kind of like not beamed in, but kind of towed in, so to speak, into the luxury liner, the passenger. Yeah, that they the pirate ship they had hijacked it to make yeah. it a pirate ship. And when when you before they're even brought into it, and you're just seeing the CGI, I think it might be a hybrid shot of a CGI mod or uh, a model ship, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with a when you look inside the actual, you know, the docking bay, basically, then that's like CGI of an interior that's not actually, you know, obviously built at all. Like, it's probably just a black, you know, void. But here they've they've done the whole almost like green screen of like very shoddily inserting like, you know, like almost like a video feed instead of an actual like real place of what should be the uh, interior from the vantage point of from the outside looking in. But it's it's that kind of thing that I, I absolutely eat up because mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's just me, but I almost kind of like write it off even, and I don't even have to because I just think it looks cool. But even if you want to get into like logic or whatever, it's like I almost feel like in sci-fi there's so much room i think to like really like give a lot of slack with this shit because like you know who's to say there's not some weird invention in the future that like is like a force field you know that does this so therefore the perspective of the outside of a ship uh and the inside of a ship looks different from a vantage point because of these weird you know technological shit right and it's like we don't we don't need a character to explain that because then yeah now you, me thinks you know thou doth protest too much <laughs> yes but like it, it almost like fuels your imagination if you just kind of go all in on these cheap effects but make sure not you don't have to justify it because then i start to go well you know what no well, maybe this is you know, maybe this is more true to life. Not literally, but, you know, mm-hmm. like, whatever. So It's an interesting point, actually. Uh, you're right. I mean, we don't really know what the future is going to look like. We don't know what's going to pass for realism. You know, like, yeah. when we watch, like, um, you know, the battle, the newer Battlestar Galactica show, you know, they would have those scenes of them fighting in space, and, and they would do, like, rack focus, where suddenly they would focus in on one ship or the other, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, which is meant to, you know, convey verisimilitude, but it's like, well, you know, at the same time, from that distance, aren't they all just about the same? I don't know, you know? No, yeah. It's, but- you know, it's it's more of hearkening back to what we think of as modern war films, not so much what it might actually look like. Yeah, well, right. you know. No, but, uh, but it's true, though. Like, there's so many ways to film this kind of shit that... To try to go for, in my opinion, the most boring, which is like, well, what 
doesn't look like our budget and what looks like, you know, like how do you hide the seams, you know? Like obviously there's a certain amount of due diligence. Like, yeah, it'd be nice not to see a boom mic in the shot, <laughs> uh, you know, like, or like, you know, try to hide the wires on the model or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like, and the reason why those break the immersion is not because it looked cheap, but because that says this is a movie. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, the model itself and special effects itself does not scream this is a film. I'm not saying you can't be conscious of that when you're watching it, but they are not signposts to quote unquote filmmaking because these they're just models. And that's why having your character try to justify it will then kind of point out maybe, oh, okay, well now the reality is breaking a little bit because why, you know, why are they talking about this or whatever? Right. No, that's a good point. I mean, it reminds me of that part in uh, thank you for smoking where the Rob Lowe character, he's this executive and they're like, well, we're going to have to have, we're trying to, they're trying to product place cigarettes in space. And they're like, but what oh, yeah. about the oxygen? You know, it's pure. And he's like, yeah. oh, well, just, you know, thank God we invented the thus and such. One line of dialogue it's taken care of, <laughs> you know? Well, and that's funny because, you know, I, I remember that scene. That's a good scene. And what I think, at least as far as my own personal taste, is like, I'm like the opposite of that. Whereas, like, although, Although, obviously, smoking in space, yeah, because, like, of oxygen, whatever, like, that may be an impulsive thought when you're watching something like that. Mm -hmm. If a character doesn't explicitly state why that's possible, then my, like, almost knee-jerk reaction is then, oh, they must have solved that problem. You know, it's yes, like, yes. If, they, if they can literally walk on the ground in a spaceship you know, recreate their own gravity. I have no problem believing that things that shouldn't be possible are possible. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And this is where you and I kind of differ from some folks who really enjoy saying, well, this plot hole or that plot hole or this. And, and like, I know you and me are like, yeah, I don't give a damn about that at all, really. Yeah, no. I mean, unless it's super glaring, I really don't. I'm willing to yeah. kind of like float along with the plot and, and, and with the, yeah. the the whole look. I mean, know? plot holes to me, I would only call something a plot hole if a movie directly contradicts itself. So yes. it's like if a character in a movie says something like, oh man, you really shouldn't smoke in this spaceship because we'll all blow up if you do. And then a character smokes in the spaceship and the spaceship doesn't blow up, you know, like, yes. like and it's not a comedy or something, you know, like then that's a plot hole. But to watch a movie is to say you're watching an alternate reality. And if you are doing that, the rules don't apply like whatever rules you adhere to. So unless a movie states otherwise, uh, you have no real presumption to believe anything of, of what you already know to be true in real life is true in these movies. So yeah, anyway. No, that's very true. And, and I mean, you're right. I mean, if as long as it's consistent within its own world, we should be able to suspend our disbelief for a little while. I mean, otherwise, why go to the movies? Because you're just going to be, you know, unhappy the whole time because <laughs> yeah. it's going to be like, oh, well, that couldn't be, you know, or what I, you know, I don't know. So, so uh, the last thing I want to touch on before I think sure. we'll go into final ratings, but I think like the last major thing we haven't quite zeroed in on is just the, I think the dynamic between the three, you know, the three, um, we kind of touch on them individually a little bit, but I feel like that's one of the things that carries this movie for me, at least is definitely these three in a room. I think they had good enough chemistry. I say that not as a pejorative, but like, no, I wasn't like amazing or whatever, but I think the three of these, uh, amigos, uh, had enough fun. Clearly, I think on set that it showed on screen and I, I would have, 
honestly watched the entire movie of just the three of them in a spaceship, you know, like right. not even in danger, but just, you know, I mean, that's why we, I think before I know I hadn't seen it at the time, but why you included it and why I like that ridiculous soundbite of Dennis Hopper, you know, oh, we can take her clothes <laughs> off, you know. That's a pretty like, cheesy way. Yeah. I, I mean, it just kills me, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's great because I, I felt like that's when the movie most came alive for me mm-hmm. because I, you know, I really, I really kind of grew into believing this found family. And I think one thing I really liked about the dynamic between the three was that, you know, from the offset, it's extremely clear where it's going to go. It's not an inherently bad thing. Sure. You know, with, with him, you know, wanting marriage from her. And then of course a young guy comes in who's actually more, uh, her bow and equal. Right. (laughs) Um, and yet the movie doesn't mine a whole lot of drama from that, which I thought was actually refreshing. It's pretty straightforward about how, even John Canyon knows that, like, eh, this like, like a better offer when he sees one. So it's not so much that I think he would have did the right thing without any external, you know, pressure, <laughs> but he didn't need that much, you know, cajoling essentially to basically go, yeah, you know what, this, like, I'm not going to stand in the way of anything. And I actually felt like, you know, he didn't come off as, especially for being kind of cheap and grungy in the way that this movie is like he didn't come off as necessarily chauvinistic as i feel like a lot of other protagonists in this type of mode would have mm-hmm. especially considering the central conceit be behind uh what ties him and cindy together so i i found it refreshingly muted i don't know but what did you think about this kind of the triangle this dynamic well i agree um i and i definitely felt like they did have a a pretty good chemistry between the three of them because like you said there are times where you wonder are they are they simply just are these the lines or are they riffing i mean okay something was written down and then they're kind of riffing on it uh, and, and some of those arguments feel like that. Uh, the other thing, though, is it was nice that they're pretty quickly put in a situation where the three of them have to work together, which I enjoyed. I enjoy seeing the three of them. And without a lot of friction. Oh, right, exactly. I mean, like they yeah. they can bicker a little bit, but it's not like, you know, sometimes the go to thing is like, well, we really need these people to really stick to their guns. Right. You know what I mean? And then learn at the end why they need each other. But here is just a lot more practical, like about. 20, 25 minutes in, they're basically all like realizing that all three want the exact same thing. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and like you said, I think, I think the Canyon character, he realizes that his, his uh, uh, engagement to Cindy is, is kind of a scam. I mean, uh, he might have gotten a fair and square on they're both adults who agreed, but it's not, he shouldn't really hold her to it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it is interesting. Um, well, and then, of course, at the very end, he meets her mother, who is, Totally beautiful, played by Barbara Cranston. Well, and, I was going to uh, say, like, you know, when they get to the hospital and then they're talking to her while the curtain's drawn, and then, like, I, like, rolled my eyes, like, in a good way, where I was like, oh, of course, you know, like, without even, because I didn't know who it was going to be or anything like that, but I'm like, oh, he's going to get his woman <laughs> in a very weird consolation prize-esque, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so, but I, I thought that was funny, and I thought it was pretty well done, mostly because they don't really dwell on it. Like, it's actually left kind of unsaid you know true true and it's very clever the idea of well i was six so they put me in suspended animation i'm like you know i can really almost buy that you know that makes yeah. sense to me that could be something in the future they do so yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah i do i do like the dynamic between the three quite a bit and i and i i also like their interactions with the charles dance character and <laughs> probably my only real 
uh, beef with the movie is I would have liked to have seen the Charles Dance character last just a little longer, maybe another 10 minutes at the most. Um, I, I feel I like definitely, he, yeah, you know what I mean? Once, once he, we realized he was on the ship on the cab, I thought, Oh, okay. What are they going to do? But it, I mean, as it turns out, it was just that totally badass death scene, but I mean, but still, I, I, it would have been interesting to see him using his technical know-how to help them try to defeat these bio-mutant robot warrior thingers. So, I, I know I will admit after having seen the entire thing and realizing the limited role that Charles Dance plays, I'm like, you know what? There's definitely another draft could have basically... Now, part of that is probably because of Charles Dance. You know, I think he's pretty much what you know, made that character, so to speak, besides uh, the prosthetics. Um, right. But uh in general i like you know what that's one of those things where i feel like you just be like you know what can we halt production to write today because we need to go write at least five more pages <laughs> yeah this guy is way too interesting for us to kill on page 72 <laughs> you yeah. know he needs to make it to at least 105 you know or whatever yeah no that's very true um and it, i mean i've seen I've seen Charles Dance uh, play villains kind of broadly, like in The Last Action Hero, which is, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's what it is. But I mean, he wasn't... <laughs> give That's so funny, because I'm one of the few people that also think that that movie is just kind of eh. Yeah, I mean, it's not like awful. I mean, some people just hated that movie. It was like, it was like a passion for these people, but... For me, it was like, okay, whatever, you know, but... I just hate that I was taught that movie in a film class. You were? Yeah, now, here's the thing. I'm not saying it didn't fit the theme, but it's not a great movie. In my opinion, it's not, at least. So, there are better examples. So, it was taught in self-reflexive cinemas, like in the uh, topic. Because, well, there is a fair amount of that. I mean, obviously, there's the F, okay, there F. Is. Murray so it's Abraham like, character who's basically playing right, himself. Right. So, it's obviously, it's like, especially for because it was community college, so I'm guessing it's a, and it was a general ed. So, it's like, sure. you know, maybe they're just trying to, but in my opinion, I felt like they just chose that because they like that movie more than a movie that actually earns it and whatever so yeah i mean i can definitely think of films that are using a, a self-reflexive quality to much more sophisticated effect and i think that's actually one of the issues with the last action hero for me is that it's it's a lot of setups that don't really tie together very well and, and they don't necessarily work that great on their own either i don't think um i would agree yeah. and i also just hate the idea of this is so petty but yeah. of an audience having to watch that who doesn't know who bergman is basically having to be told that death is a character in the seven <laughs> seal yes like bluntly instead of just like an actual funny gag which would be an actual shot of like people watching let's say the seven seal but not saying what it is and just having the guy you know i don't know it's just it was just a little too whatever no Maybe, i agree you know it's just it plays for the philistines if you ask me it does it does <laughs> but i'm a philistine yeah dad, dad <laughs> i think i am a philistine <laughs> a little squid the whale anyway uh <laughs> oh yeah so the, there was an example like that last action era where charles dance was not really given any very good lines to say, and he had to do some silly stuff, and he still did okay, but I feel like with this, where he had a little bit more to sink his teeth into, and he really played it not... I mean, it was broad. Everybody in the movie... The whole film is, is pretty broad. Yeah. Like I said, it's got a little bit of the Wiley E. Coyote thing, but he's still... He's got little nuances, little grace notes. Like, you know, like I said, he's he sort of knows this is an uncomfortable situation for her. You know, I mean, it's just there's a lot of funny stuff yeah, like yeah. that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. 
one thing I do want to say really fast, yeah. though, just as a shout out to the composer, it's a guy named Colin Towns, and I'm not familiar with anything else he's done, I don't think, but he does some pretty impressive heavy lifting throughout. He's got some pretty inventive, uh, like, switcheroos. Like, the opening pre-credits are like, you know, very John Williams, Holst the Planet kind of, you know, triumphant bombastic type thing. But then, like, you get to the diner fight scene. And then later when they're escaping from the transport police and this, it switches into this like Aaron Copeland kind of like orchestral barn burner thing. Like it reminded me a lot of um, Aaron Copeland's um, Billy the Kid uh, ballet suite, which I mean, you may not know that title, but you've heard it. I mean, it's 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 just yeah, yeah. that kind of like Western archetypal music, you know. Uh, and so, I mean, I think I think it's pretty impressive some of the stuff he does. I mean, even th- there's even that scene where they're like they're thinking they're drinking their last beer, and like the flavor switches to this total like, um, like piano, clarinet, violin piece, and it's very reminiscent of like these knee cues that I would traditionally hear in scenes in sitcoms like New Heart or Webster. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or even Cheers and Taxi. I mean, even higher end stuff. Yeah. But it, it would be like, you know, they'd show the outside of the building and be like, dun, 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 you know, whatever. And oh, yeah, I just, yeah. it's so, yeah, the guy is just, New Heart a, is, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say a prime example of that whole Vermont, like aesthetic of just like, you know, somebody had to actually say had to pay someone to actually go do this location shooting for something that no one's going to ever really care about or remember. And then we'll dress it up with uh, like well, how you're describing, like yeah. bombastic kind of right. uh, easy listening. Yes, exactly. It's bombastic, yet it's easy listening. It's a weird <laughs> combination. Uh, it's it's inoffensive, you know, yeah. and it usually involves some clarinet, some electric piano. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then like later on in the film, there's the scene where the pirate ship appears and it's like there's all these like low bassoons bouncing along and it like it feels like like i was like man i'm about to see you know uh captain hooks uh you know crocodile coming towards him from the distance (laughs) you know like it had that kind of feel that sort of comic uh menace (laughs) you know so so yeah so i just want to give a shout out to colin towns who I thought did a pretty impressive job of, of making the film a lot more playful and fun than it could have been and, and helping a lot of the transitions in, in mode and in, in uh, tone, I guess I should say. I, I, I would agree. It's actually one of those things where I didn't quite notice the score that much. Mm-hmm. And yet sometimes when a movie is this cheap, that's basically a good sign of the effectiveness of it because it felt like standard fare and it didn't stick out as like... Sure oh, wow, they couldn't actually get someone to compose music for this. They just found this off the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, totally. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that for sure. So, well, why don't we go into uh, some final ratings Indeed. for Space Truckers? Uh, would you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, Yeah, I'll go. I'll go first. Um, okay. I mean, I'll be quick. Uh, I just, uh, I really love this movie and I, I would give it four and a half stars. Um, it's, I think it's, it's, it, it's almost perfectly successful at what it sets out to achieve and it does it in a way that like i said it has an interesting mesh of tones that you just not a lot of directors would be able to juggle all those tones i mean like i said maybe joe dante and to an extent sam raimi's output like you know like the scene at the beginning where uh um, makanudo is um you know, uh, betrayed in his lab. And it's very much like the very beginning, like the beginning scenes of dark man, where it's like, uh, he, you know, he brought himself back to life. So, I mean, so that made me think of Raimi, but for the most part, I, I really feel like this is a, a very special film in, 
just like I said, how it, it set out to do a very specific couple of things. And I think it was pretty successful, really. I mean, I, I don't know if there's much I can fault it with, you know? So four and a half for me. I think that's completely fair. Um, as a for myself, I mean, as a first time viewing, I gave this three and a half out of five. And honestly, uh, I thought this was not going to be very good. And I don't mean that in that I wasn't going to enjoy watching it, but mm-hmm. I was actually surprised by the fact that I was both enjoying it and appreciating it. Like it was, you know, it mm-hmm. was going to, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this. And um, uh, it actually makes me a little sad that this is not very uh, celebrated. Uh, I haven't really heard a single person. Stuart Gordon is not a no-name director in, at least in these fields and whatnot. Yeah. So the idea that it's been kind of lost by the wayside, I almost feel like the thing it suffers from the most is uh, being too adjacent to this millennium, you know, where it's like it's so past what I think a lot of people would consider the expiration date of worthwhile uh, cheap genre fare mm. because it's like a movie that looks like this came out only, what, three years or so before the year 2000, which mm-hmm. – it's certainly an interesting thing when you watch it because it genuinely looks like it was from the 80s, like from definitely, you know, the aesthetic, which was obviously intentional. You know, it's a inspired by the films of the 80s and B, it's almost like Stuart Gordon wanted to make this even though he was 10 years too late. It's like, well, I don't give a shit, you know, so <laughs> I admire the brazenness of that in general, especially because, uh, you know, it, it was, a, I think, a gamble, but it was one that actually won the hand. So I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, three and a half out of five for me. Yeah. Um, I will give a quick shout out and say one of the reasons why it's clearly not that celebrated is because it's currently pretty out of print, mm-hmm. so to speak, uh, at least as far as a U.S. release. I just looked and I just saw that pretty much any DVD is either non-USA or it is an exorbitant price because it's the actual, probably the only DVD that was ever released, which was released back in 1999. Oh, wow. When it was such a new format. So that's kind of hilarious. There is a Blu-ray that is out of this region, but obviously if you have a region-free player, it has recently come out, and I believe that's the print I watched by some kind of means. But I know, Dan, you bought the Blu-ray. Did you watch that? I I did well. I did I did buy the Blu-ray, and it is unfortunately Region Two. Um, and unfortunately, my player is a little finicky. Even though it's a Region oh, yeah, you're, Free, I was gonna say little, I I do remember your player is a little uh little uh shall we say I'm a shy side when it comes to mm. doing its Region Free duties. Exactly. Yes. I mean, when it comes to DVDs, it'll play any region. That's no problem. But with Blu-rays, it gets a little finicky sometimes. It'll play most Region Two, Three and such like uh blu-rays but once in a while it'll you know give them the little little finicky next time you come over bring it over because i want to see what the print looks like Mm -hmm. uh on mine which you know mine always works it never has performance anxiety i just want to put it out there well yeah and i am planning to buy a new one soon and i was i was asking you some questions about that recently you know like okay well how does yours work down it sounds like it has so i might end up getting the same brand i will admit i haven't put it through the ringer and used it all that much which is kind of a shame because it's like why did they get it but but i like having it but yeah i haven't watched a lot of uh non-a discs but every time i've tried one it's always worked so that's good 
maybe sometime I'll, I'll bring over a few that I know for a fact have never worked for me and just kind of see, you know, just kind of curiosity. The gamut to yeah. make sure it's not just like a fluke that it works over here. But so anyway, um, but yeah, no, but the that Blu-ray, that non-region A Blu-ray seemed to have come out uh, within the last couple of years and it seemed to be a legit HD print. So it's pretty nice. So uh, if you have a region free player, it's actually pretty cheap right now on amazon it's only like 12 dollars, which for a movie like this on blu-ray uh that's pretty good it is so now cue the theme song no i'm kidding uh but you're really not there no i'm not <laughs> Uh, now we are going to do a segment called The A-List. The A-List, of course, is a segment in which me and Dan will basically suggest a movie we think is, uh, shall we say, the A version to this B movie that we just talked about, uh, that being Space Truckers. So, you know, there's really kind of loosey-goosey format here. It's not really all that rigid, uh, except even loosey-goosey. Dan likes to break the rules. I'm going to mention that every episode. because Just because I did it on the very first episode, it's like I'm never going to outlive this, you know? I mean, yeah, pretty much. Mm. Uh, But you're going to break the rules again because I believe you told me you had two movies you want to talk about. So... Let's go, rule breaker. All right. Well, I'm a rebel, man. I go in the outdoor. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm just, you know, the only language I know is violence, my friend. That's, you I know. I shit in the sink and I wash my hands in the toilet. Exactly. I am that grizzled. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, like I said, I'll just talk about two very briefly. Uh, one of them that uh, this one reminded me of where it had that combination of sort of comical violence with uh, maybe not as much gore as say space truckers, but, but definitely very uh, committed, I guess I should say. Uh, but with a, with a level of comedy and silliness. Uh, and I'm thinking of John Carpenter's big trouble in little China, which has a few maybe problematic issues as far as Chinese stereotypes. But I personally have always been of the opinion that due to the widespread participation of so many great Chinese actors, Chinese, well, Chinese and Korean, I guess, actors, that I feel like it was, it was something, it was a joke they were all in on, but I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, it's, it's quite good. Um, I actually just bought it on DVD recently when we went to, uh, the drive-in in, uh, in, uh, Sterling, actually. So, which probably made me think of it, but it's very much, you know, again, the main character, He's a, you know, hard driving truck driver, you know, uh, played by, uh, Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell's kind of ch- channeling this John Wayne thing. And it's, it's hilarious because a lot of his machismo is undercut, but he's also very clever at times. And I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a very odd fantasy movie that's almost indescribable. It's several genres in one. And like I said, it has that little bit of a Chuck Jones, Wiley e. Coyote feel to it while still having what what feels like pretty suspenseful stakes. I mean, it's John Carpenter directed this. And and so it's, it's not, it's not phoned in at all. This is definitely, this is, I think, if anything, a passion project of his. And uh, it's another one of his great collaborations with Kurt Russell. So I highly recommend it. Um, So that's more, I'm recommending that more for the tone of space truckers, but as for kind of the underlying theme, the, the corporatist theme, 
I'm recommending a British film from 1957 uh, called Hell Drivers. And um, it's it's quite good. It is available. Again, I think it's only Region 2, but uh, BFI, uh, British Film Institute, released a version of it. Um, I just rewatched it recently because I hadn't watched it in about 20 years. But it's very much, um, it, it makes plain a lot of the themes that are uh, less explicit in space truckers, but the idea of um, essentially the bosses playing the people against each other in order to get maximize profits and maximize productivity, even if that means the safety goes out the window. Um, and this is a really amazing film where it's basically about literally a bunch of truck drivers, but they're only driving like 10 miles, but they're trying to do like something like, you know, 15, 16 trips a day. And they're, they're carrying this uh, peat gravel. I don't remember from which location to which, but like I said, it's only about 10 miles and it's in like the north of England, I want to say. And it's insane. These guys are just like driving so recklessly. And, you know, when the new guy shows up, he, oh, you know, you're going to get the hotel you're, or you're going to get the room that the last guy was in, but he died from a wreck, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a lot of um, uh, tension in that. And it also features Patrick McGowan. Uh, I was just about to say, is this, uh, I haven't seen it, but is this the uh, vehicle with uh, Patrick McGowan in it? It is. And he plays an absolutely unredeemable bastard villain and he's so good in it too i mean it's it's one of those really memorable screen villains from the 50s i would say and um but the funny thing is even he's not really the main villain the main villain is the boss who is like okay you know you're responsible for everything if your truck breaks down your fault if you get injured we don't pay anything i mean it was just just the worst working conditions possible you know, uh, and and so basically, these guys are just being played against each other, and these rivalries, which are possibly fatal, are are being used to, like I said, maximize the profits for a few people. Hey, this I gotta say, because I've never heard of this, I'm looking at it right now, and I, I you know, one thing I gotta point out, just for genre geeks out there, is that this movie has some serious street credibility over in England because it has two of maybe the most iconic English television performances which is obviously patrick McGowan as the uh as the quote-unquote titular prisoner yes yes and uh, before that the secret agent of course which a lot of people will say is actually the the well they say that the prisoner is often the sequel to the secret agent although it's it's, it's shady but still yeah. he's really good in both oh yeah and it has william hartnell who played the very first doctor in doctor who oh dang it i forgot is that who that was yeah, it's, so it's um, it's got a pretty crazy. Yeah, it's got a really good cast. Um, there's another guy in it whose name escapes me, but he's in a ton of great films like you know Tunes of Glory, uh, a lot of Scottish films, of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Can't think of the guy's name, but yeah, there's a lot of just great British character actors in it. And um, Herbert Lom plays um, an Italian immigrant and uh, who's one of the drivers, but he's kind of on the outs because he's only you know Italian, you know. Uh, so there's a lot of racism against him, but he, he has a really very touching performance in it too. So it's, it's a very satisfying, interesting movie and it's very action packed. I mean, it's not one of those things where the, the years have not diminished its impact. I think, you know what I mean? Huh. Well, that is very good. I will have to uh, add that to my list. That was Hell drivers, mm -hmm. uh, alongside, um, 
Right, forgotten big trouble <laughs> in little china yeah big trouble in little china oh, which by boy. the way i'm singing that is the actual theme song it's like big trouble in little it's china true. it's literally like that and it's john carpenter wrote the music man you know he did oh so. i was gonna say he's the best at that yes um I, I gotta rewatch big trouble i watched it i've only watched it once and i did not love it mm-hmm. but i did not quite love john carpenter as much when I watched it, sure. it may have even been the first one I had seen, maybe second, but um, besides Halloween, but that's those are so starkly different in general. Um, so I, I definitely need to revisit that for sure. Well, I mean, it's it's not up there with like say the fog or the thing or Halloween, where like you're like, wow, I'm watching just an, just a perfect piece of film, you know. Uh, this is more just loosey goosey and kind of goofy, you know, but it's fun. And, yeah. and honestly, everybody you can see is having a good time. And it's such a weird plot. You got to give the guy credit for just how eccentric it all is. So anyway, it is at times. And I don't even mean this as a pejorative. If anything, I almost wish it leaned into it a little more or maybe it did. And I just wasn't quite paying attention. But at times it reminded me of like how I felt when I was wa- when I was a child and watching a Power Rangers episode. Where <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's that's actually astute. I would say that's not a bad similarity in tone. Yeah. Where it almost feels like, A, it almost like, well, with specifically reference, you know, to Power Rangers, that A, it feels like this weird American adaptation of something else, where I feel like Big Trouble in Little China does kind of, even though it has obviously a distinctly American vibe to the protagonist, it's obviously encroaching on a whole other culture. Mm -hmm. But then B, it has this almost like threadbare lunacy that (laughs) is just kind of... So, you know, I mean, I I definitely don't look back on it unfondly or anything like that. I just found it slightly underwhelming. But at its best, it did make me go, huh, there's nothing else like this. That's true. There really isn't. And and I think when I went into it, I had zero expectations because I always thought, well, that looks like a dumb movie. But I was watching a lot of John Carpenter and I thought, duty bound to watch this movie. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really, really crazy. Okay, I got to give the guy credit here. <laughs> you know? And I think the opposite of that is when I first watched it, I was told that this was one of john carpenter's greatest thing oh wow it's one of the greatest genre movies of all time you know whatever which i'm not even saying i would try to dispute that or whatever but i feel like that's a lofty way to walk into something like big trouble in little china <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty hard to live up to any I, I, it's hard for any movie to live i mean up for to anything like for that. sure but i mean there are some undisputable like you know you, you you set someone in front of something like halloween and you say this is foundational horror you know like sure. it, it's hard not to walk away from that and go yeah i see it like even if you don't like you know love it whatever it's it's all right there but True. anyway yeah. that's a whole other conversation for another podcast that we Indeed. don't have <laughs> so uh, what is your a-list my friend well you know what i will say after giving you shit i am gonna break the rules uh and i <laughs> well I, you know in the immortal words of one of my favorite presidents uh i'm saying when the president does it it is not illegal uh <laughs> yes and um what i will say is that i have chosen a tv show uh it is specifically an anime called space dandy mm. and it is uh 
It is quite literally, it's a very loosey-goosey show um, about a guy named Space Dandy. <laughs> he's literally the narrator who narrates the show, and he's actually one of my favorite narrators in any piece of fiction, which is hard because not a lot of narrators are great. Yeah, um, but wow, that's a hell of a But it, it's like a rest development level of like, the narrator definitely makes the show, you know, whatever. And um, he literally, when the show starts, he, he says, space dandy. He's a dandy guy in space. <laughs> and <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it has this already, like even before you've seen like, you know, a full 10 frames or so, it already has this kind of chill vibe to it. And uh, it is about space dandy, who's just a guy who drives around his piece of junk called the Aloha O. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, everything is in the ship is decorated with very kind of like um, out of place in a futuristic thing, you know, where it's like he's still holding on to a, a world that no longer exists, but uh, is meaningful to him. And he himself is kind of this horny idiot, you know, so kind of like John Canyon a little bit. Um <laughs> And kind of, I mean, looks wise and whatnot, he's definitely like Elvis meets Han Solo, you know, like he's got a pompadour wow. and yeah, I know. So, so anyway, he, but he has this kind of blue collar feel because for a career, he is an alien hunter where he goes off to quite literally just, if there's an alien that's never been discovered, you're not supposed to kill it, but you just capture it. You bring it to the place so that you can database it. And then you get paid in credits, you know, and that's, so it's just very kind of grinding like work because, yeah. You know, when you're doing it, you're not even like like really thanked. You know, you just like dropping it off like you're dropping off cattle. You know, whatever. Sure, sure. Or and square the, pigs, if you will. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so, and it's got this camaraderie because actually, much like uh, uh, space truckers, the central group is a triptych. It's him and two other characters that have, uh, he picks up in the first episode that he goes around with, and it's just kind of a really chill show it's funny because it actually has some extremely lofty sci-fi concepts and ambition but from episode to episode it did whatever it wanted to do so it could have a literal episode be a george romero uh homage where the entire uh world is overtaken by zombies including our main characters um <laughs> like they they become zombies in the second half of the episode wow. and the rest the rest of the episode is literally like watching what a zombie-fied version of the show you've already been watching looks like, you know. <laughs> um, and the continuity was very Looney Tunes-esque, but also weirdly meta, because even though characters could die at the end of an episode, there was also this weird hint on the fringe that maybe these were alternate realities we were watching, you know, like, and, and maybe, that's, maybe that's what a cartoon is, you know, whatever. And anyways, it's a crazy ambitious show, but yet when you're watching it, it is just super chill. And I feel like what I had talked about earlier with Space truckers about like wanting to see these characters just kind of bicker uh in a ship like this is probably the thing i thought the most of uh for whatever reason was this anime called space dandy it's uh, it's very it's only like 20 something episodes and i would recommend it for anyone even if they don't really like anime because it was created by uh chinichiro wantanabe the guy who created cowboy bebop which oh, yes. alongside cowboy bebop space dandy is a very westernized anime where it's this hybrid of more west uh you know western type themes and or aesthetics uh than you would normally get from a typically eastern uh genre so huh. uh, yeah it's a it's a weird one but i am a big fan of it i've never uh 
really put it out of my mind ever since uh, it aired about six years ago or so. So, oh, I was going to uh, ask how old it was because I'm not familiar, yeah, no, but it sounds great. Rel- relatively recent, had two seasons, definitely did not need more than that. So I think it went out pretty well. And um, yeah, it, uh, it's pretty enjoyable. So. Um, so that's Space Dandy, the anime. So and is that available on the Blu-ray? It is. It's available on the Blu-ray, the nice. DVD. Uh, I believe it's probably on things like Crunchyroll, which is the anime uh, streaming service, and anywhere you can like buy or rent anything. So definitely widely available, unlike some animes. But because I think of the uh, Watanabe connection, it's very marketable to uh, America. So yeah, that is. Uh, Space Dandy. So, as we draw to a close and we put the, well, you know, we put the episode in bed and we tuck Mm -hmm. it in a little bit. That was our discussion in general of Space Truckers. Next time, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to go in a different genre. We're going to go into a different country. We're going to go into a different language. (laughs) We're going to go into a... A different kind of life, a different style, lifestyle, if you would. No, I'm sorry, go on. No, apology not accepted. (laughs) We are going to be talking about Jess Franco, or that's Jesus Franco, for all you formal people out there. Uh, His movie, Vampiros Lesbos, which came out in the 70s, um, 1971. Uh, And you know what? Got to say... We're going to get into this a lot more on the actual episode, but if you know one thing about me, and you do now, is that I love Jess Franco. I love uh, proselytizing Jess Franco um, to the unconverted, which is most everybody, because <laughs> even people who have heard and watched Jess Franco don't want to be converted. Um, <laughs> I would consider myself evangelical so to speak because oh, i i like <laughs> yeah i'm because, sorry i just caught me coming <laughs> off guard that was really good sorry oh, thank Go you <laughs> no 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 so i i'm a big big fan but he's definitely a difficult filmmaker to love not difficult based on like uh ambitions and or uh you know <laughs> Uh, whatever but because uh, some people think he's ed wood and other people think he's like god's gift to euro cult cinema um which you know technically speaking some people probably think ed wood's god's gift to cinema so who's to say uh, there are probably a couple yeah but i genuinely think and we'll obviously expand on this that his mode of filmmaking while while it is nonsensical unlike someone like ed wood who i can't appreciate he found the right genre and mode that is perfectly suited for incoherence. You know, it it, <laughs> it has a dreamlike logic to it that is almost makes him seem like a genius, in my opinion. So, uh, which is not to say you can't make shit films because he did that a lot. Uh, but Vampiros Lesbos is often a touted and celebrated movie, even by those who usually do not. Uh, care for him i think for the most part people will at least say like well this is his prettiest film or at least this one has uh soledad miranda in it and i'll talk about her mm-hmm. uh she's a babe mm-hmm. so we're gonna get really into jess franco on next episode of project exploitation <laughs> uh and, and you know what this isn't your first one right because i showed you one 
I um, have I have seen one other one. Um, oh we gosh, watched, I can't we, remember uh, the name of it. Uh, well, it was a it was one of his Eugenie pictures. I think that one was Wicked Memoirs of Eugenie. He made like at least that a sounds, dozen of those. That sounds right. Yeah, because that yeah. was one of the ones where he you said he reused the same uh, sort of castle house. Yeah, thing. That, that 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 house. I forget what it's called, but yep, that mm-hmm. was the common location and Eugenie, the common character name, and really just the sod in general the common fixation sure uh this one is more uh his uh vampire fixation which he did quite a bit so uh not quite the desaad but more of the uh macabre <laughs> oh. and uh <laughs> and so yeah we'll get into that uh next time so awesome uh let's just roll what kind of word am i looking for here roll call there we yeah. go that's what I, I was like role play nope role anyway roll mm, cosplay nope. role play <laughs> but mail order no sorry go on mail order it's customs you have to get mail order yeah never mind oh okay it's a line from like, the island where steve buscemi's like no, no, no this isn't for you to put on this is mail order <laughs> he's like him okay. and his wife role play <laughs> i'm glad you explained anyway. that to me because if you hadn't uh i would have been slightly disturbed oh good uh <laughs> So we're going to roll call here uh, the various places and outlets you can find us. So Project Exploitation, of course, if you're listening to it, congratulations. You've already figured out where we're hosted. But in case you didn't know, uh, we are on all major platforms from Apple Podcasts to Stitcher to Spotify to Amazon just started doing podcasts now, uh, which we are. We're there, too. So. Yeah, wherever you can get podcasts and pull the feeds, we should be there. And if we're not, send us an email and we will add ourselves there. And speaking of email, we are also reachable at projectsploitation at gmail.com. You can find us on our website at projectsploitation.com. It's a beautiful new website, just created only a little month ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter, where sometimes I will tweet out some random stuff that I've been watching that kind of fits uh, this general uh, kind of eras and uh, genres of exploitation filmmaking. Uh, and you can find us there on Twitter at Projects Pod. That's our Twitter uh, handle, not the username. So Projects Pod, P R O. J-E-X-P-O-D, Projects Pod. And uh, yeah, give us a shout. Uh, if you got any ideas on uh, what we should watch, we'll probably listen to you. Uh, unless it's illegal, in which case we cannot do it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's true. We we uh, strictly abide by the law no matter what. I mean, for the most part, you know, like we're not going to, uh, you know, watch a Tracy Lord's film. So, right. Exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that in in, an, in a later episode. There is one legal movie of hers. So. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the famous part was that she did all those movies, and then mysteriously she made one movie after she turned eighteen. That was the last movie she ever made, and it's also the only movie she owns the rights to. Wow. Yes. I'm intrigued. Okay. So when you yeah when you consider how much you know. Uh, how, how much damage she was able to do to the industry, which I don't blame her. I mean, you know, like she was a victim in all of this, no matter whether she did it, whether she was technically, you know, manipulating the industry and the, you know, whatever or not. It's, you know, technically speaking, she was underage, which means that yeah, it, it's wrong no matter what. Right. But there also seems to be a 
savvy business woman at the heart of this 15 year old because hmm. she did all of this it became known you know that it was uh, illegal obvious reason so everything did have to come off the wall you know like at you know at vhs rental shop whatever and she she was the only one who owned the rights to the only movie that uh, is legal and of course she didn't release it so huh uh, well she well she did release it initially you know made money off of it but then took it out of circulation because she owned the rights whereas she would not have had the claim to do that for any of those other movies but obviously they were removed because of the legality so very shrewd person i think uh, in a good way and, and so. so these uh earlier movies that people are on the bed tucking their shirt in a lot i'm guessing yeah a lot of shirt mm-hmm. tucking going on mm-hmm. uh you know rudy can't fail yes <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, you got a Clash reference in. I did. I think that is one a of great... my favorite Clash songs. I'm sorry, oh, sorry, go a great on. Song. No, no, no. I, I think that's a great song. It's one of my favorites for sure. I was going to say, I think Rudy Can't Fail is a great spot to end this episode on. Mm-hmm. So we will catch up with you guys uh, next time and uh, do your homework. Mm-hmm. Watch Vampires Lesbos. Uh, I'm sure it's available on YouTube or something because all of his films are that cheap and really unwanted that it should not be hard to find <laughs> out where it is. So do yourself a favor, really, and uh, yes. watch Vampires Lesbos. So we will see you guys next time and uh, keep on projecting. It just needs an end, Max. I, I don't have an end.